0: Okay. Um, My opening illustration, I want to tell you about the time that I had the talk with my daughter. My wife is confused because she had the talk with my daughter. I had a different talk with my daughter. My daughter's an avid reader. She reads everything she can get her hands on, except for the books I recommend. Uh... (laughs) she does she, she reads everything and she loves to read and she always has a book in her hands and she can be watching netflix and reading a book at the same time uh, multitasking right uh, so when she was quite young i had to talk with her and i'll give you the abbreviated talk and it goes like this every act of speech is performed by someone desiring to convince you of something There is no act of speech that is neutral or, simply put, they're not trying to convince you of their way of thinking. It doesn't exist. So if you are reading The Hunger Games, or if you're reading Harry Potter, or if you are reading the New Testament, I'm not putting them on the same level, I'm simply saying every act of speech whether the written word, whether in a play or a movie or a conversation, every act of speech is a desire to get you to believe something, to do something, to see something according to the speaker's point of view. Now, I argued for that forcefully with my daughter. And after reading the two chapters that we have coming to us today, I think I might express the same frustration that our brother Tim expressed a few weeks ago, in that it seems that Dr. Allison can say things that it, it just appears that he's not really arguing one way or the other. I don't, I don't know if you had a chance to read the chapter in front of us this morning. The chapter in front of us is on church offices. And to the best of his ability, Dr. Allison says these are the church offices and these are the scriptures that pertain to them. But it seems to me he goes to he he, he omits quite a bit of what he might try to argue is the biblical view on it. Now, Dr. Allison is far more intelligent and advanced and. I'm sure closer to the Lord and all that. I'm, I'm not disparaging Dr. Allison. I had him when I was at Southern. I loved the man. Um, let's just see, though, what might be the argument behind such a telling of this chapter. Well, uh, it's argued in quite quite it's it's argued quite frequently that the New Testament is simply not clear on what. On church offices and or church government. That the New Testament, what what we have in the New Testament is descriptions of church offices and church government. But we don't have in the New Testament any explicit commands about how to set up church government. We don't have an extended passage of scripture where Paul or one of the other apostles lays out for us, you are to have such-and-such government, and and such-and-such hierarchy, and and such-and-such authority. That's the argument, that that the New Testament does not explicitly mandate any form of church government. Therefore, throughout the church history, various forms of church government have been employed by churches to more or less good effect for the church whether and this gets into next week whether you have an episcopal form of government where it's very hierarchical you have archbishops bishops cardinals or whatever whatever hierarchy in that in the various episcopal systems there's a hierarchy that is a valid form of church government serves the people well in certain church contexts or you have a presbytery uh, a Presbyterian form of church government where the various elders of the churches gather together in uh, more concentrated groups both at the regional and the national level and those regional and national levels have authority over all the churches that serves the church as well or there's a congregational uh, model and that serves the church as well too but since the New Testament is not explicitly clear on it we can all say well let's live and that live you know to a certain degree we must agree to a certain degree, we must agree with that, right? Um, when, when we talked about the orders of what's most important theologically, right, um, we, we may not want to argue that what, the way we organize our church government is a first-order gospel issue. We, won't, we wouldn't want to say that somebody who is part of a church, that is part of the Presbyterian form of church government, you are outside of Christ, you are not a brother, no. We don't want to say that. Now, where it falls in the second and third degree, that might be a little bit of a debate. The main thing I want to ask you, though, is, is it true that the New Testament is more or less silent on the issue of church offices and church government? Not silent necessarily, but just descriptive of what might have existed in the first century, but not prescriptive in the way it ought to be done going forward. Well, uh, we want to examine those things together over the course of these two weeks. Um, My second introduction, a word about words. Okay, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Translator of the Bible why sometimes do you take a Greek word and you find an equivalent English word and you translate it and you take the Greek word and you give us the English word and we go ah okay in this context elder what we're talking about here the various church offices the translators of the New Testament encountered a word presbyteros and said well Let's not just keep saying presbyteros in English. Let's translate it to its equivalent, which is elder. However, they took the word apostolos, which is Greek, and said, well, instead of translating it everywhere in the New Testament, let's just anglicize it or take the Greek word and say it in a Kentucky accent and just throw it in the New Testament. (laughs) Dear Mr. and Mrs. Translator, why do you do this to us? Does the word apostolos have no equivalent in English? It does. It has the equivalent of messenger. Or Mr. and Mrs. Translator, what exactly is the English word deacon? Well, it's servant. Yet sometimes in the New Testament, and these are not the only instances, right? You have the word baptism. What exactly is the English word baptism? Well, it's actually to submerge in water, right? There's a very clear English translation of that. When we come to certain words in the New Testament, there's a difficulty. Nouns, like prepositions, are also hard. Okay, uh, Apostles, deacons, elders, we need to be able to distinguish, as we're going through the, the relevant text this morning, what... Uh, when these words are being used as titles, and when these words are being used as lesser descriptions of the activity of some people. Okay? A word about words. In the next two weeks, we want to talk about authority. Authority in the church specifically. Uh, First, this week, we're going to talk about the gift of authority to the church, and next week we're going to talk about the organization of authority in the church. Okay? Uh, Like so many issues when it comes to systematic theology, I don't know where to put the horse in the cart, uh, but Dr. Allison chose to put offices first and government second. It's really hard to talk about offices without talking about government, so if I repeat myself next week, forgive me. We want to talk about today the gift of authority in the church. Okay? And the gift of authority, I think we need to start with speaking about the highest authority, the highest human authority in the church. The highest human authority in the church is not your elders. It's not you, the congregation. It's not even the apostles. I'm being very careful with my language here. The highest human authority in the church is King Jesus Himself. He is 100% man continuing to this day Let's just look at a few passages by way of reminder. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, please. We have covered all of this going forward, so we won't dwell here. But in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we read, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Just a few things to note in this first section. This is just a reminder we have had a whole section on the doctrine of Christ. Uh, Here we learn that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is, being the second person of the Trinity, he, in his incarnation, reveals God the Father perfectly to humanity in human form. He is the creator of everything, including all authorities. Now, in in this passage, Paul is specifically uh, talking about spiritual authorities, I believe, but when it comes to the issue of authority, Christ created and rules over all authorities. Okay, He is the giver of authority. He is the ruler of all other authorities. We need to recognize this. And this extends in his incarnation and his specific work as prophet and priest and king over the church, becoming the head of the body and becoming preeminent over everything. Now, specifically and uniquely for the church, Jesus is the ultimate human authority. Active today. Not inactive. Not absent. Not off the scene but jesus is actively working in his church and he is making intercession for all of his saints jesus is the ultimate human authority or turn to first timothy chapter 6 verse 15 Uh, Just to get a sentence here, let's uh, jump up to verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Timothy is to do. Keep the uh, commandment unstained and free from reproach. Uh, Specifically about Jesus Christ, which he displayed at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here we have a very strong uh, statement about Christ. He is sovereign. He is the King of kings. And he has complete, eternal Dominion, okay? We cannot talk about the authority given to the church without speaking of where the authority originates. Authority in the church originates from our king. Why do we go to this trouble? To reiterate what we've already said and what all of us agree on. There is a tendency in the sinful human heart to reject authority, to hate authority, to rebel against authority, and I am the chief sinner among you in this regard. Testify. Chris Chris is not willing to testify. There's just, there's something in our remaining sinful nature that when somebody claims authority, something prickles inside of us, and it doesn't help that we live in America. It doesn't help That we live in America where freedom and individuality and rights and all these issues are swirling around our minds and trying to squeeze out what God has given to us as a gift which is authority and so I ask you as we progress through the levels of authority always return to the source of authority so that you can root out the sinful tendency to rebel against authority and say, no, my Jesus, who loved me to the uttermost and who is the head over the church, he is the ultimate authority. He is the source of authority. And as he delegates this authority to other human actors, it is a gift from him. And so I ought to be I ought to put to death this sin of rebellion against authority and accept it in the church as Christ's good gift to me out of love for him and honor towards him. Okay? Second realm of human authority in the church are the apostles. Okay? The apostles are a unique, they are a unique, a limited, and an initiatory office In the church okay they are unique in the sense that the apostles had a specific function they had specific qualifications and those qualifications and uh, and that specific role was not to continue throughout the entire church age except in a very specific sense that we'll talk about in a minute okay but We should not expect to see uppercase title officer apostles in the church today. They are limited, both in their time frame and in their number. So as we examine the evidence from the Word of God, we'll see that there were uh, 12 disciples of Christ, and Jesus appointed them as apostles with a title, Apostle of Jesus Christ. One of them was the son of perdition. So the remaining 11 called upon the congregation to choose between those who were qualified. And among those who the congregation chose, Jesus himself directed who the replacement for Judas ought to be, namely Matthias. These 12 are the original apostles, the 11 excluding Judas and Matthias. When we read in Revelation that the names of the 12 apostles are on the 12 foundation stones of the city of God, it is the 11 minus Judas and Matthias. Okay? And these original were foundational, essential And they had a unique role in the beginning of the church, but it was limited. Now, the evidence of the New Testament, as you know, suggests that the number of apostles was not limited to just 12. You can name the one that is the standout exception to this. Paul. Thank you. Paul is the standout exception to this as one untimely born. And he seems to indicate the last. Now, are there other title apostles of Jesus Christ? Maybe, probably. According to the New Testament data, uh, in in, in one of the same instances where Paul is named an apostle, Barnabas is named an apostle actually before the name of Paul. Barnabas and Paul both designated apostles in that sense. It may be that Silas was counted as an apostle, okay? It's not so important that we, in the year 2019, are able to name all of the original apostles. It's not so important as that. What is important for us is to say that they were unique, they were limited both in time and number, and they were initiatory, okay? The apostles were necessary at the beginning of the church as the next human authority after Christ has departed for the beginning of the church, for the establishment of the church, for the spreading of the gospel, and most specifically for establishing the word of God that we find in the 27 books of the New Testament. Okay? The 27 books of the New Testament are apostolic, And that is why they have authority. So uh, let's briefly review the qualifications for apostle. Uh, Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read verses 3 through 9 together. For I, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. For I deliver to you as of the first importance, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures; and that He appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Let's just pause right there. The first qualification for being an apostle is that you must be a witness of the resurrection. Now, there are other passages that we could go to, but uh, we have to pick and choose in a Sunday school setting to uh, just pick out relevant passages that hopefully encompass everything we need to uh, see here. One of the qualifications for being an apostle is that you must be witness to the resurrection. That is, Jesus died and was buried. Three days later, he was raised from the tomb and he revealed himself to a certain number. Now, uh, at least 500, right? He revealed himself to plenty of people after his resurrection establishing the fact that he was not dead he is alive now if you are going to be an apostle you must be in this number a witness of the resurrection james is called an apostle In this context here, this is James, the brother of Jesus, who presumably was not a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, but came to understand the deity of Christ and submitted himself in faith and repentance to his brother, his earthly brother, recognizing he is in fact the Son of God. And James was a witness of the resurrection. Okay, that's another candidate for apostleship. Paul is also a witness of the resurrection, but you know the story. He wasn't a regular witness of the resurrection in that he was not numbered among the 500. He was not numbered among the 12. He was not numbered among uh, these uh, between uh, Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Uh, Paul is not numbered among those who saw Jesus in the flesh after his death and resurrection. Rather, Paul has a unique experience of being a witness of the resurrection where Christ blinds him and reveals himself to him in a vision. And Paul calls this unique, and he calls it uh, untimely, and he calls it utterly strange that he should be counted as an apostle because of this unique situation that he found himself in and in fact he says last of all which is to indicate that paul is the last of those who would qualify for the first qualification that is to be a witness of the resurrection in this unique way the other apostles saw the lord jesus christ in his resurrected body paul was a witness through a vision that he received from christ himself Now, that that's the first qualification for apostleship. The second qualification is that you must be charged by Christ Himself. Let's look at Matthew chapter ten. I'm going to go back into the Gospels here. Matthew chapter ten, verses one through seven. And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The second qualification for being an apostle is that you must be charged by Christ himself. You must be set apart, given given this specific role by Jesus himself. We see this happening for the original 12 in Jesus' earthly ministry where he gives them authority and he sends them out to teach, to proclaim, to call the lost sheep of Israel back to their God. Okay, So Jesus is giving these original 12 authority to, uh, to teach and to cast out demons. Very unique circumstance for these 12 men. This charge also extends to those who were after these original 12. Go to Acts chapter 26 with me, if you will. In Acts 26, verses 16 and 17, Paul is speaking. He's giving his testimony here. Jesus says to him, Rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul is specifically charged by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, this is accounted multiple times uh, throughout Paul's writings and here in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul also was specifically charged by Jesus for a specific purpose. He's been appointed and he has been charged to carry a specific weight. Now, what is the authority? So we've established that The primary human authority over the church is King Jesus himself. After King Jesus, he establishes apostles. There are specific qualifications for being an apostle. What is their job? What is their authority? What are they to do? I hope I'm not uh, asking you to turn too much in your Bibles here, but in John chapter 14, verse 26, we start to get hints of what the apostles' role is. John 14, 26, we read... But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things that I have said to you. Now, couple this with John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Where Jesus continues, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. We have a specific role of the Holy Spirit toward the Apostles. The role of the Holy Spirit toward the apostles is to make them remember all of Christ's teaching. And in fact, to make them remember it authoritatively. Not in the sense that there were plenty of crowds that heard Jesus teaching. And when the apostles preached, there certainly were some in the crowds that go, yeah, I think I remember Jesus saying that. But in fact, Jesus gives to the apostles the gift of the Holy Spirit specifically to make them remember His words and to make them remember it authoritatively. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Do we see this worked out not just in the original 12? In fact, we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 36 through 40. Or what is it from you that the word of God Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. What in the world kind of authority is Paul claiming for himself here? If any of you in the Corinthian church have the gift of prophecy, well, praise the Lord, exercise it. This is early church. Remember, we've already discussed the gifts. Larry very, Larry taught that to us well. okay. This is very early in the church. If you have the gift of prophecy, exercise it. But if you think for a minute that your exercising of the gift of prophecy will negate what I have said to you, then you do not recognize that what I am writing to you is a command from the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. This is hearkening back to the excommunication language. He is not to be recognized. He is to be excluded, right? Paul is claiming for himself and, by extension, all of the apostles, the authority to speak God's words and in fact we have them written down for us in the 27 books of the New Testament they are apostolic in their authority now we've already talked about the doctrine of the word of God so when it comes to uh, when it comes to the book of Hebrews or uh, the book of Luke we need to recognize that they are associates of the apostles and therefore bear the weight of of apostolic authority with them does the office of apostleship continue today well certainly once we recognize that the apostles had the unique authority to write scripture that ought to be enough for us to say no the office of apostleship does not continue today okay it was unique it was limited but in a sense The authority of apostleship does continue today because the Holy Spirit was pleased to preserve the apostles teaching in the 27 books of the New Testament. So as we cascade through our realms of authority, we see that Christ is the beneficent giver of authority. And as we recognize him as our sovereign king and we are in love with him and we're fighting against this sinful rebellion against authority by accepting it as a gift from Christ and then we see that he gifts his apostles to, uh, to give us the word of God and to teach us the, the words of Christ. Now we accept the word of God as what it is straight from God's mouth himself. Okay, We are cascading through the, the realms of authority. Well, Certainly, the apostles were the original disciples, right? Uh, they were the twelve. They were the called out ones. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he picks out certain ones, but they weren't the only ones in Jesus' ministry to believe in him. Uh, there, were, uh, there were plenty of believers in Christ that we read about in the Gospels. Now, they are not appointed as apostles, but they are believers, and they are, beginning, they are the beginning of the church, it's not normal for us to talk about members as part of the authority structure of the church. But bear with me for just a second. Um, when we, last week, we talked extensively about church discipline. Okay? And Pastor Thad taught us well about how church discipline is restorative and it is. Uh, it is for the benefit of the one being disciplined, and it doesn't go straight to the most extreme measure, but it begins lovingly uh, between one and the one offended and the one um, and, and the offender, and then it maybe has to go to two or three witnesses, and, and it continues on down the path. But that passage in Matthew chapter 18 is very telling about how Jesus thinks about his. Total group of followers, his church, all of his saints combined. You see, the ultimate authority of who holds, this is a controversial phrase. It's not so controversial, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Who holds the keys to the kingdom? And if he will not listen to the church then the church must take action and exclude the one who is living in sin. When we think about the human authority of the church, before we get to what we see as the offices of the church effective today in the men that we have appointed, that has to exist in a congregational context. It has to exist in a belief, in a recognition that the members of the church have authority. Last week we talked about church discipline, and we could go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where uh, actually Pastor Thad took us to 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 5 last week, and we see that a man was committing heinous sin, and Paul commanded that he be excluded, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter uh 2, verses 6 through, I'm sorry, in 2nd Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we seem to read that the, the man repented and um and was restored to fellowship, but the action of the church, Paul says, was by the majority. So Mark Dever writes in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, that it is often argued that there are no church votes in the New Testament. That is not true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we are told that the majority made a decision about this man who had his father's wife. Okay? There was a church vote. The authority of who is in the church rests not with the elders, not with the deacons. It rests with you the gathered body of the church, we have a responsibility to identify those who are showing evidence of faith in Christ and when severe evidence of no faith in Christ is evident in a person's life, it is the church's responsibility. Now, you should take this responsibility seriously so that when testimonies are sent out over email, you don't swipe until it's gone. You read it. You understand it. If there is a question, you have the responsibility to go to the one applying for membership and get clarification. Not in a demanding, overlording, I don't think you're a Christian way, but in a loving, bringing them into the fellowship kind of way. When you said... Such and such in your testimony. Can you help me understand that a little bit better? Perfectly legitimate for you to do as the congregation. It is not going through the motions when at the Lord's table or perhaps sometimes during a uh, morning worship service that the elders stand before us and say, The elders make a recommendation. Do we have a second? And all those in favor, and all the, it is not a formality. It should not be a foregone conclusion. It should be a seriously taken responsibility upon all the members to say it is to the gathered church that the keys of the kingdom have been given. But not only that, but also the teaching of the church is ultimately under the responsibility of the church members themselves. Now, let's not get controversial just yet let's just look at the word of god and see what paul says galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 Uh, galatians is a letter to multiple churches to a region so it is to be read among lots of churches and paul says to them almost immediately he says hi a brief prayer and then he says He does not address this letter to the elders of the churches of Galatia. He addresses this letter to all the brothers, I'm sorry, uh, to the churches of Galatia at the end of verse 2 there. All the churches, that is the church members. Paul holds the members of the churches in the region of Galatia responsible for tolerating this false teaching. Okay. Um, not only that, but uh, at the end of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, telling Timothy his responsibilities. But then he talks about false teachers and those with itching ears ready to hear. I those itching ears ready to hear. Who does Paul hold responsible for the false teaching? He doesn't seem to hold Timothy responsible. He holds those who are hearing you. You have a responsibility to demarcate who is in the church and who is out of the church. You have a responsibility to ensure the integrity of the teaching that we have. That is to say, you appoint the leaders. And if, God forbid, any of our elders tolerate false teaching, it is your responsibility to remove them so, uh, you have a responsibility to appoint leaders. Uh, Acts chapter 6 is, uh, a, a, the classic example of how church leaders were originally selected. Uh, we tend to think of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then, uh, verse 7 as, uh, as the appointment of the first deacons. And that, that's not a, wrong way of thinking about it, uh, but just know that at the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 6 here, uh, there isn't a designation between elders and deacons, and specifically in Acts chapter 6, the seven that are named, many of them go on to preach and to become missionaries and to go on and, um, and seem to have elder-like ministries, which is all to say that as we read this, just think of this as what the apostles tell the congregation that they ought to do okay so beginning of verse one now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the hellenists arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. I'm sorry, the whole gathering. And they chose, the, con- the gathering chose Stephen, uh, Philip, Procurus, Nicomor, Timon. Um, and these they set before the apostles and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them okay so what do we see here uh we have a situation in the early church where the apostles it seems before there were any elders or deacons right the apostles had a situation arise and they needed ministry assistance because they needed to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer so when this situation happened the apostles called on the members of the church to choose for themselves men who are upright and meet the qualifications and appoint them, choose them. And it was good to the apostles, so the apostles laid their hands on them and appointed them to the service. Okay? Now, in Acts chapter 6, we see that uh, the word serve is used here. In other words, the word deacon. uh, These men were to deacon tables. This is another instance of where uh, the translators here take the word deacon and they translate it for us to serve. But in other places, we just get the word deacon moved over from Greek for us. Okay, So uh, there, is, there is sufficient evidence to think that Acts chapter 6 is the beginning of the deacon ministry, which is why I place it forth. But I want you to see that your responsibility is to guard the the membership of the church. It is your responsibility to guard the teaching of the church and it is your responsibility to uh, to elect leaders to the church. Okay, Jim? Acts 17.11. Quote it. You want me to look it up? Uh, bring you more noble in that they search the scriptures daily to be seen for so. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that has to do with two things. You made a comment about uh, what was his name? Uh, Allison. Allison. Uh, we don't know why he left it maybe indefinite, indefinite. Yeah. In that, uh, you know, maybe he, he's just giving us a, a a chance to search out the scriptures and make our own decisions, sure, based on what we read. Yeah. And then secondly, make sure the truth of the word is presented in, in the right pulpit. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll issue my apologies now. Uh, I'm I, I in no way on the level of Dr. Allison, and I, I, know, I think I know what he's doing. He wants this book to be widely used among all who call themselves Christians, and he does want them to search their own polity and say, where does it conform to the Word of God and where does it not? There's was, there was a fellow I used to love to listen to uh, in Tennessee, and he, he kept preaching that, Acts 17.11, Acts 17.11. Uh, And and I hated it at the time, but then I realized what he's trying to do is to get us into Scripture daily. Mm. And if he succeeded at that, then the Holy Spirit would take over. Right. Yeah, perfect. Uh, It is not to a priestly class. Actually, it is to a priestly class that uh, the study of the Word of God is entrusted, but you are the priests of the church So uh, you, you are a holy nation uh, The royal priesthood Okay. So you're right, absolutely uh, It is our responsibility to study the scripture And when and, and how would we know if the teaching was deviating If we didn't study the scripture Right? So uh, in the context of congregationalism The Lord Jesus gives us Two gifts That we normally talk about When we talk about the offices of the church Now I know we only have 10 minutes left, but I'm glad we have next week where we can fill in any gaps that we get to. Okay, There are two offices of the church that we normally talk about when we talk about uh, the offices of the church in uh, our present context. Okay, We do talk about deacons, which uh, Acts chapter 6 is normally taken to be the beginning of uh, this office in the church. Uh, there's very little other uh, texts in the New Testament that uh, might qualify as the beginning of the uh, role of deacon in the church, but there are there is a passage about the qualifications for deacons in First Timothy chapter three, and you know this passage well in First Timothy chapter three. Uh, We read about these qualifications, beginning in verse 8, "'Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus.'" Um, other than the translation of the word deacon to be servant, we must look to the qualifications laid out for deacons to try to ascertain what their role is. Now, certainly there are character qualifications for deacon uh, outlined by Paul here. Uh, it must not be uh, double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. These are all um, character qualifications, but don't they also point to what the role of deacons might be? Uh, Why would a deacon not uh, be required not to be greedy for dishonest gain? Now, of course, we don't want the word of God to fall into disrepute because we've elected officers who are greedy for dishonest gain, but perhaps also the deacons uh, have some administrative responsibility over the finances of the church. Or uh, when we read that they are to be tested first and then, uh, and then to serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless, uh, why would this be? Well, perhaps they have some administrative rule over the church. Maybe the realm of their responsibility includes that they, uh, that they will need to make decisions for the church, specific decisions uh, specific to their role and as um, assigned to them by the elders. Uh, why do their wives have qualifications here. The elders' wives don't have qualifications in the paragraph right before this. Uh, the deacons' wives seem to have qualifications, maybe because the deacons have a, a role to fill where they have to um, uh, uh, minister or, or, or visit those in the church, maybe even do some counseling. Now, we know that the counseling ministry of the church falls to all the members, and Pastor Mark has taught us well on that, that we are to be each other's counselors, and we are to be in each other's lives. Uh, But how much more so would maybe an officer of the church need to be in that? So if the deacon is to be a counselor, then he needs to be trustworthy, and probably if he is counseling another married couple, he would want his wife with him. And therefore, his wife has to be honorable and be able to uh, keep confidence as well. All I'm saying is the qualifications for deacons are, are what we have to go on to lead us to say, well, what might the role of deacon be? Okay, uh, The role of deacon seems to be... Uh, it is definitely the role of a servant to the church. They are distinct from elders. So, as we look at the role of elders to rule and to uh, and to teach, that is not the deacons' role. The deacons' role is not to rule and teach in place of the elders. Uh, but they do have roles, probably assigned to them by the elders. But these specific roles they are to fulfill on their own integrity. They don't need oversight from the elders. Pastor Mark has been clear to say that uh, our deaconate does not need the oversight of the elders. Our deacons, because we have followed the qualifications laid out for them, are perfectly sufficient to fulfill their own responsibilities, and they do it well for our church. Okay. Qualifications for deacons. Let's introduce elders, and we'll have to finish up uh, elders, before we talk about the organization of authority. And, and it really works out well as, as we begin to talk about elders. I am going to argue next week for, uh, an independent congregational church led by a plurality of elders. Spoiler. All right. uh, that's what I'm going to argue for, and, uh, and much of that is going to be derived from uh, what we learn about the office of elder in the New Testament church. But as we have a few minutes left, uh, let's begin our study of what elder is, and perhaps we'll get further along than I anticipate. Um, elder is one of those words that are translated for us uh, from Greek, and why is the word elder used? Uh, probably because the synagogues of the dispersion were organized around elders. The leaders of the synagogue were designated as elders. And so as the church is forming and spreading and uh, and many converts are coming out of Judaism, that would make sense because reasons, uh, you know them, right? Uh, the, as the church begins to organize, it probably just makes logical sense that Uh, the same sort of language that is used in synagogue settings will be used in the churches abroad, right? Uh, Certainly the apostles have a specific role in the Jerusalem church, and as they spread out, uh, they have responsibilities over those churches. But as we establish churches, the word elder just naturally comes from the synagogue and it moves into the church. But it is not an equivalent. And it it's not like we can go and study the history of elders in synagogues and say, okay, now we understand elders in the church. Rather, the New Testament is our guide to what elders are. Now, there are other words used for the office of elder in the New Testament. Uh, we hear the word pastor. We hear the word overseer. And if you have a King James, don't be ashamed. Hold it up. Who has the King James with them this morning? You'll read the word bishop, right? Thank you, Paula. (laughs) Um, Right? You'll read the word bishop. Now, uh, let me say this. Let's be kind to those who use the word bishop. In Owensboro, Kentucky, we're probably used to hearing the word bishop used for uh, the Roman Catholic setting, right? Those who, the hierarchy, right? But there are other churches that use the term bishop to simply mean pastor, And when we encounter those churches, don't bring your preconceived notions of what they mean by bishop with you. Talk to them. Uh, Specifically, we might look to our uh, brothers in our African-American predominant churches. They tend to use the word bishop to refer to their pastor. Is this wrong? Well, no. The New Testament actually uses the word bishop, right? Uh, if you're still in 1 Timothy chapter 3 there, uh, look back to verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of, in the old language, bishop, and the ESV overseer, right? If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. The word bishop or overseer is used in the New Testament to designate what is most commonly called elder. Not only the word bishop, though, but also the word pastor. We can look to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and we can see the word uh, pastor used to describe um, elders here. But by by and large, the most common use of this office in the New Testament is... Is elders. Um, When we look at the qualifications and the role of elders, we see that they are to rule and they are to teach. Um, I'm going to finish this up next week because uh, it's too important. I am going to argue for this extensively next week. And uh, hey, half half my lesson is prepared. All right, amen. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, I'm going to ask uh, Lester, would you pray for us as we close? Father, we thank you for the time that we've had uh, this morning to get a better understanding of the organization of the church and uh, its authority. Lord, we thank you that the ultimate authority is Christ Himself. We thank you for the teaching of... Uh, and the preparation of jason uh, we're blessed him. Um, in his teaching we pray that you would help us to understand it more and help us to submit to uh, your authority in your teaching uh, Lord, we thank you for this church the faithfulness of the men who teach and preach and we ask that your spirit might give function and approval to what is being said and also what is being heard and how it's heard we thank you for the holy spirit and the help that we get. Uh, in doing these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.